Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 40. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation and you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marvelled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favour of God was upon him. One of the most polarising persons in history is our Lord Jesus Christ. As disciples of Jesus, we love him, and with every fibre of our being, we live for him, we long for him, and we long for his coming. But at the same time, at the name of Jesus, many will be filled with hatred and bitterness and gall. And some will pour out their disdain and mock and ridicule those who follow Jesus. Others, well, they might feel that they're all very neutral because, hey, I'm not for him, I'm not against him, and it just means nothing to them. But the thing is, one cannot remain neutral toward Jesus. Um, We are pushed by God that we have to make a decision on who Jesus is. And how we respond to Jesus 
reveals the condition of our heart. Right, so we've just begun our new series on the Gospel of Luke. And today's Bible reading continues really the introduction to this gospel. Up until this point in the gospel, has been talking about there's been various visits from angels and there's, there's been the birth of the John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus and the angels have appeared to the shepherds and the shepherds have come and worshipped Jesus at the nativity and the shepherds have just left. And all of this, which has come before this, has been introducing to us the purpose of Jesus' coming the purpose of Jesus' coming was to bring salvation. And the whole of this gospel is about that, about the coming of Jesus bringing salvation. And we see that again today. And the very next scene, which we're in now today, is introducing to us the godliness and, and the devoutness and the piousness of Jesus' parents and, and how they did everything that was required by the Lord. Now, some Christians turn their nose up at any thought of being devout or pious. And what do I mean by that? When we talk about being devout or being pious, do you, do you get a positive connotation or a negative connotation? The thing is, to be devout or to be pious means that worshipping God and serving God takes first place in one's life, right? And so a devout person is someone who will pray often. A devout person is someone who will read God's word. And a devout person will live righteously because they know that, that our Heavenly Father wants his children to walk in his ways. It's what we call obedience. And a devout person, they're not, they're not the sort of person who would stay home from church because they had a late night the night before or because things are just a bit busy for them at the moment. God becomes their priority. That's what it means to be devout. Now, the thing is, we're sort of used to these words being devout or being pious as a negative connotation. And people use particularly the word pious as, oh, that's somebody who looks down their nose at you. And some people might feel like that. But a truly pious person won't be looking down their nose at other people. A truly pious person is a person who is totally dedicated to God. And part of that will be loving others, which means we don't look down our nose at others. But what jumps out at me at this passage is that the way that God does his work and God speaks through those who are devout and are pious. Um, he speaks through those and does his work through those who are devoted to God. Now, Mary and Joseph, they did everything required by the law. There's, there's three separate religious ceremonies that are listed here, all sort of tangled up in the one story. Um, and they did everything that was required by the law. The first thing that law, the law required was circumcision. Now, circumcision was the mark of belonging to God's people of Israel. The covenant that God had made with Abraham and confirmed over and over and over again required every male to be circumcised. And it was written in the law that when a male infant reached eight days old, that's the day to do it. Now, that was the old covenant. We're told in the book of Romans that, that I think it's Romans told somewhere, that, that Jesus was born under the law of the old covenant to redeem those who are under the law. But we now live under a new covenant. 
And so if you are a male and not circumcised yet, don't fret and don't, don't ask me to sharpen up the knife to bring next Sunday to do the deed. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It just simply means that you're not a Jew. The second ceremony, well, that's something that would happen any time 40 days after giving birth. And this was the sacrifice for purification. Now, I'll just be quite blunt. Giving birth is a messy business. Um, and so for cleanliness reasons, and it takes a while for things to get all working and settle it again, and, and there's various bleedings and secretions that happen for some time. And so because of all this, for cleanliness reasons, there, there was the law that, that you couldn't go into the holy place. It couldn't go into the holy place of God, the temple, uh, for 40 days after giving birth. And so after 40 days, you could then come to the temple and for, for the sacrifice of purification. And this is what Joseph and Mary did. After 40 days, they made their journey to Jerusalem. Right? They had actually travelled to Jerusalem for their purification. Now, something that we learn here as well is Jesus was born into a poor family. I don't know if you know that or not. His father was a carpenter, but apparently carpenters are poor. You got that, Jack? Carpenters are poor. At least they were back then, probably not so now. How do we know that they were poor? It's because as we read in, in Leviticus and, and in the Old Testament scriptures, the, the required sacrifice for purification was a lamb that would be offered as a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove which was offered as a sin offering. But for the poor, for those who couldn't afford to buy a lamb to sacrifice, the poor could bring two birds. They could bring two pigeons or two turtle doves. One of those birds would be used for the burnt offering and the other one would be used for the sin offering. And so we, we understand from this that, that Jesus was born into a poor family. They couldn't afford to buy, to, to present a lamb as a sacrifice. All they could afford was the bird. And the priest then makes atonement for her, and she shall be clean. The third ceremony was the dedication, where the firstborn would be presented before God. Now, that, that's a common thing that we do here, isn't it? When our children are born, we come and we dedicate them to God. Now, it's, it was a little bit different for these people, though. We know that the Lord provides for his people. We know this, don't we? As we were, had the list here of the children's story, all of the things we can give thanks to God for, we've got so much to give thanks to God for. He has provided for us in so many ways. And an abiding principle is that God's people give unto God the first fruits. We don't give God our leftovers. We don't give him what we feel we can afford after we've satisfied all of our other expenses and, and put some into savings and paid off all our loans. We give to God the first and the best. And an example of this we find in Exodus chapter 13 where every firstborn male belonged to God. In Exodus chapter 13 verse 12 it says, You shall set apart to Yahweh all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be Yahweh's. 
right? So you'd have to know your stock pretty well if you had a had a, a ewe or a cow. If that was the first male that had been birthed to that ewe or that cow, then it belonged to God. But even a firstborn male son belonged to God and had to be redeemed. Because we're not going to sacrifice our children, are we? And God doesn't want us to sacrifice our children. And so by the law, there was a prescribed fee of redemption, five shekels of silver. And I did the conversions. You, you, I looked at the, what weight five shekels was and, and looked at this week's price of silver. It comes to about $58. There you go. That's what your firstborn son's worth, $58. It's going to be the cheapest money that you spend on him ever. But, but why? Why did the firstborn belong to God? Well, it was a reminder of God's salvation and how God brought his people out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 13, reading from verse 14 says, And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You say to him, by a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, Yahweh killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to Yahweh all the males that first opened the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Right? It, it was a reminder of how the Lord brought his people out of Egypt. It was a reminder of salvation. By the way, as it turns out, Mary and Joseph probably didn't really need to pay the five shekels to redeem Jesus as the firstborn because Jesus, the firstborn of God, was sacrificed. And this is, this is the picture of salvation that we have coming through here. Anyway, the point is, right from his birth, Jesus was enveloped into a godly, devout and pious family. They did everything required by the religious law. And while they're doing that, at the temple, we meet another godly and devout man by the name of Simeon. And we're told three things about Simeon. He was righteous, he was devout, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, when the Bible describes a person as righteous, that doesn't just mean that they don't break the law and doesn't just mean that they do the right thing all the time and it doesn't just mean that they don't upset too many people. To be righteous is to demonstrate the very character of God. And Simeon was righteous and he was devout. He was God-fearing. He was devoted to God. God was number one in his life and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now that's a pretty big thing. That's a pretty big statement there for it to say, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Because it's a long time since the Bible could have said that. And that's why there's such a big gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because God wasn't speaking through his Holy Spirit in that big gap. Before the ascension of Jesus, it was quite a rare thing for the Holy Spirit to come upon anyone. 
As we read the Old Testament, we see that the Holy Spirit would come upon a person for a specific purpose, for a specific time. But things are very different for us now. As Christians, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. If you have given your heart to Jesus, and if you, then that means you have been saved by the blood of Jesus and received forgiveness in his name. If, if this is true for you, at the point at which sin is kicked out of your life, the Lord moves in and the Holy Spirit lives in our hearts. How can you be sure that you've got the Holy Spirit in your heart? Well, Jesus told us, he said, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And we talk a lot about the Holy Spirit, about the Holy, how the Holy Spirit dwells in our life and how the Holy Spirit helps us to, to do what's right and wrong. We have, the Holy Spirit is the means by which the fruit of the Spirit grows in our lives. How can we know and be sure that we've got the Holy Spirit? We just ask him. We just ask our Heavenly Father, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to live as the child of God that I am. Make your righteousness part of my life by filling me with your Holy Spirit. If you just ask God with that simple prayer and truly desire this, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. All we have to do is pray and ask. But, but sometimes we may not feel that the Holy Spirit is upon us. We might feel that other things are getting the better of us. We might feel that we're getting distant from God. And we, but we crave for the Holy Spirit to be upon us, do we not? Does anyone not crave that? Yeah, we crave for the Holy Spirit to be upon us. But sometimes we don't feel that he is. Now, the sad thing is some people then try to remedy that oh, we've just got to get the right atmosphere, right? We, we, we've just got to have the right music playing or the right band and the right mood lighting will dim the lights and, and we might even be able to have a bit of, bit of fog generated from a smoke machine coming through and put a little bit of light in that. We'll just give that Holy Spirit atmosphere and then we'll feel the Holy Spirit coming upon us. You know what? I actually don't see a lot of evidence for that in the Scriptures. It's got nothing to do with aesthetics. It's got nothing to do with mood music and nothing to do with mood lighting. The Holy Spirit comes upon the God-fearing and upon the righteous. The Holy Spirit comes upon those who are devoted to God. I think of a bloke by the name of Cornelius. We can read about him in, in Acts. He's described as being a devout man. He's a man who feared God. He's a man who gave generously to those who were in need. And he was a man who was devoted to prayer. And all of this was before he even knew Jesus. And one day he was in prayer to God. And Cornelius was praying and, and this angel appeared to him. And he said, Cornelius, you need to send for Peter. And he's going to come and tell you something really important. By the way, Peter's staying with such and such a bloke who lives in such and such a place in such and such a town. And so he sends for Peter. 
And Peter, at the same time, had a dream that's let him know that he needs to do something. And he brings Peter. So Peter came and Peter preached the gospel. And while Peter was still preaching, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. And time and time again, it's the same. We, we read this in the scriptures. It, it, the Holy Spirit comes upon those whose hearts are surrendered to God. The Holy Spirit comes upon those who are God-fearing. The Holy Spirit comes upon those who are devout and righteous before him. That's when the Holy Spirit comes in power and fills your life with the power that you so long for God to give you. The power over the sin, the, the power to live righteously. See, we fully experience the power of God when everything else fades. And when the Lord Jesus Christ is lifted up to where he truly belongs, to be our Lord and to be our master. It's when we surrender ourselves to him, when we surrender to him our hopes and our dreams and our plans totally over to him and say, Lord, I'm in your hand. Do with me as you will. Guide me as you will. Direct me as you will. Send me where you will. Do with me as you will. When we're in that place with God, that is when the Holy Spirit will take a place of power in your life. So let's, let's never settle for a second-rate spiritual feeling generated by moods or, or sights or sounds. Let's never settle for that. Because when we do, I suspect that we probably miss out on experiencing a genuine experience of the Spirit of God, an experience that comes when, when God comes upon us because we've been totally devoted to him and deep in prayer with him and because we're living lives of righteousness. And so that was Simeon's story. He was righteous and devout and the Holy Spirit was upon him. We're told something else about Simeon. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What's that mean? That means he was waiting for the Messiah. He was waiting for the salvation that Jesus Christ would bring. And the Lord had revealed to Simeon that before he died, he would get to see this Messiah with his own eyes. And the day that Jesus' parents presented Jesus at the temple, that promise was fulfilled. And he took Jesus, this little baby, up in his arms and he praised God. Woohoo! Now I can die in peace. My eyes have seen the salvation. It's like Simeon's whole life of devotion to God had, at this moment, had its fulfillment. He had lived righteously. He had lived devoutly in his service of God. But there was something that he had been missing, something that he had been longing for that hadn't yet happened. And here it was satisfied. His life was fulfilled with the coming of the Messiah. You know, there's many people in the world today who would fill their lives up with doing good works and good things. They might be devoted to various causes of goodwill, but for them, there's something missing. What's missing? The salvation of God that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, let's come back to the message that Simeon gave. 
my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is not something that has ever been kept hidden. It has been prepared in the presence of all peoples, Jew and Gentile alike, godly and ungodly, spiritual and unspiritual. It it, it is a light for the Gentiles. It's a beacon that, that shows this is the way, the gospel of Jesus, come here. And I thank God for this. Uh, If if this wasn't a light for the Gentiles, then most of us here would be missing out. See, a a Gentile would not have even been allowed into the temple of God. But in Christ Jesus, God lives in us. And the salvation of God through our Lord Jesus Christ is to the glory of the people of Israel. The sad thing is most of them missed it. And even today, most of the people of Israel are blind that their Messiah has already come and that their Messiah is Jesus. You see, what makes Israel special and why it is their glory is because God's salvation comes through Israel. That's that's the whole story. You read right throughout the Old Testament and it's all leading to this one point, this story of God walking with his chosen people and guiding his chosen people, that the times that God would have to discipline his chosen people and even punish them was all part of this journey of the Messiah coming, bringing God's salvation. And this is the glory of Israel. Now, we're told that that Joseph and Mary marvelled at all this. I mean, this has just been building one thing on top of another, hasn't it? Imagine, like, even before you get pregnant, the angel comes and tells you, and and then all of this, what's happening with with the the cousin, John the Baptist, being born, etc., etc., and then the angel's coming, and and the shepherds turning up on their doorstep. They've probably got a bit of an inkling that, hey, there's something special about our little boy. Every, every parent thinks there's something special about their kid, don't they? But I'm pretty sure they probably go and had a good reason to think that their child was special. But they're amazed by this. And Simeon blessed them. But it was a blessing with a sting. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. He's telling him. This child's going to be a figure of division in in our nation. And for a sign that is opposed. And speaking to Mary, he says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. As Simeon held this dear baby boy... Simeon knew that there was going to be a time where where Mary would see her son who is the light of the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. But he knew that she would see him suffering and dying 
and it'd be just like a great big sword would pierce her soul, the sorrow that she would experience. Her son would be suffering and dying because Jesus was a sign from God that will be opposed. And he still is today. Do you understand now why I began the message as I did? When it comes to Jesus, we cannot remain neutral. Jesus is the most polarizing figure in history. And how we respond to him reveals the condition of our hearts. And so even in these opening pages of the gospel, Jesus is a mere babe in arms. But we're discovering that that in his life and in his ministry, he has the shadow of the cross already there before him. Now at this point, there enters a very old lady. Her name's Anna. And she's a prophetess. We're not exactly sure how old she is. Um, With the original rendering of the Greek, it actually tells us that from the time she was married, she was married for seven years before her husband died. And then she lived, and then this is 84 years after that. Now, I think our version this morning said that she was 84 years old now. And it's a little bit ambiguous um, that she's actually... 84 now, but she could actually be 106 or more. Either way, she's very old. Nobody here is 84, are they? Oh, no, sorry? Not yet. No, no. God willing, there will be in a few years' time. But she, she was either 84 or 106 or more. She's ancient. But this is the picture that we have of her. She's a widow. And she's always at the temple, worshipping and fasting with prayer day and night. And she told everybody about Jesus, all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, I thank God for devout widows like Anna, for, for, for women whose family, whose husbands have died. And now their purpose in life is to, to worship God and fast and pray. I thank God for these women. Imagine if all of the widows in the Christian church were fasting and praying and worshipping God. Imagine knowing that the prayer is the powerhouse of the church. Imagine the work that God would be doing in his church as his widows prayed. So both Simeon and Anna lived good and devout but unfulfilled lives. They lived in hope and their fulfilment, everything that they'd hoped for and everything that they'd prayed for was found in Jesus Christ. Their devotion to God was looking forward to the coming of the Saviour. Our devotion to God is because our Saviour has already come. And we now look forward to his return. What comes through to me in this passage today is how the Spirit of God comes upon those who are devout and righteous and are eagerly waiting for their Lord. And my prayer 
is that would be us. My prayer is that we together would be a church who are devout, that we would be a people who find fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be a people who are eagerly awaiting Jesus' return, and that we would be a people who dedicate our lives to God to be lives of, of prayer and praise and worship. I guess what I'm, my prayer really is is that we would be genuine Christians, that we would be genuine disciples of Jesus, where nothing else is more important than my Lord and my Saviour where we would give our whole lives over to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for the coming of your Son, the light for the Gentiles and the glory of Israel, the figure in history whom many oppose. But for us, he is our fulfilment. He is our salvation, he is our hope, and he is our joy. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, Make us a people of prayer and praise and worship, that we would be a people devoted to you because you are our everything. In Jesus' name, amen.